Hello and welcome back to this episode of the High Yield Podcast of Medicine. In this episode of Pediatric Orthopedics, we'll turn our attention to the common childhood fractures. We will mainly cover clavicular fractures, supracondylar, humeral fracture, forearm fractures, uh, and fractures typical of child abuse. We also address green stick fractures, nursemaid elbow, torus fracture, and Salter Harris fractures. But first, let's focus on some background on definitions and classifications of fractures. Remember, fractures could be classified as open versus closed, or based on the orientation of the ends, or based on whether or not the fracture is complete or incomplete. What is open versus closed fracture? In closed fracture, the skin is intact, while in open fracture, there is a break in the skin overlying the fracture. What's the clinical significance of this? Management is different. Most open fractures are emergencies and also most of them require antibiotics. Now, what are the different types of fracture based on spatial relationship of the fracture ends? We could have non-displaced or non-angulated fracture, we could have displaced fracture, we could have angulated fracture, and we could have overriding fracture. What's the difference between displaced and angulated fractures? In displaced fractures, the fracture ends are just shifted. What if there is angulation? This is called the angulated fracture. In other words, the fracture ends forming an angle. What's an overriding fracture? Overriding or impacted fracture is a type of displaced fracture where the bone fragments overlap. In other words, one fragment is driven into or impacting into a second piece. Opposite of all this is non-displaced or non-angulated fractures in which fracture ends are remaining in the normal position. Now, what are the two types of incomplete fractures? The fractures that are not complete fractures are either compression fractures or green stick fractures. What is a compression fracture? A compression fracture, also known as buccal or torus fracture, is a cortical compression with or without interruption of periosteum that happens at the site near compression secondary to axial loading along the long axis of the long bone. For example, distal radial compression fracture upon fall on outstretched hand. That's the most common type of compression fracture. This results in bulging only in one side, which is referred to as the compression side of the bone. At what part of the bone this happens more commonly? It happens most commonly in the junction between metaphysis, that's more porous, and diaphysis, again, in the long bones. Remember, periosteum may just buckle while remaining intact or may get interrupted in compression fracture. This is indeed the only type of fracture that may have no fracture line and just have buckling. What are the symptoms of compression fracture? Symptoms include pain and tenderness without swelling, commonly at the distal side of the long bone. What are the imaging findings? Imaging usually shows bulging without fracture line or green sticking. What's the management? Given the fact that compression fractures are stable fractures, management is splinting only. What is the green stick fracture? Green stick fracture, which exemplifies the typical incomplete fracture, involves angulation and fracture with interruption of cortex and periosteum in the convex side plus buckling without interruption of cortex and periosteum 
in the compression or concave side. Remember the bending that's observed in the concave side and is referred to as buckling is due to transverse loading, while the buckling fracture, which is different from simple buckling, is due to axial loading. So please differentiate between axial versus transverse loading and also mind the difference between buckling, which simply means bending and giving way under pressure of weight, versus buckling fracture, which is the other name for compression fracture. What's the management of green stick fracture? Contrary to compression fracture where splinting was the only required management for the green stick fracture, depending on the degree of angulation, we choose the management. If we have minimum acceptable angulation, we go with immobilization with a cast. But if angulation is excessive, we need closed reduction followed by immobilization and cast. So an important question about management of green stick fractures is understanding the concept of acceptable angulation. This is a radiographic concept that has its upper limit of angulation based on either lateral or anteroposterior views for each age range. Remember, the younger the age, the higher the maximum acceptable angulation. For example, for the kids up to age 5, acceptable angulation on a lateral view is up to 25 degrees for the kids between 6 to 10 years vlo up to 20 degrees angulation on lateral view and for kids older than 10 years we only tolerate less than 10 degrees angulation otherwise we need to manage with closed reduction remember anteroposterior view angulation is usually 15 degrees less for the maximum permissible angulation for example for the kids younger than five years in anteroposterior view we only tolerate less than 10 degrees for six to ten years kids we tolerate less than five degrees angulation and for any kids older than 10 years no angulation on anteroposterior view is permissible in other words even though in lateral view for kids older than 10 years we tolerate up to 10 degrees angulation in lateral view in anteroposterior view there should be no degrees of angulation for the immobilization with cast as the only management otherwise we have to proceed with closed reduction the way to memorize it is that anteroposterior view maximum acceptable angulation is usually 15 degrees 10 to 15 degrees less than the permissible lateral view angulation and you can just memorize the range for kids between 6 to 10 years of age in which a lateral view of up to 20 degrees is considered acceptable for cast immobilization. Now, what is the important follow-up for the green stick fractures? X-rays need to be ordered 10 to 14 days after casting. Now, that finishes our discussion of incomplete fractures. Let's discuss some terms related to complete fractures. What's a transverse fracture? Transverse fracture is the fracture that has a fracture line cutting horizontal across the bone. What's the oblique fracture? It's a diagonal fracture. What's the spiral fracture? It's a type of oblique fracture in which the fracture line encircles the bone. What you expect to be the torque or 
direction force of the injury causing a spiral fracture, a twisting injury. And finally, what's comminuted fracture is a fracture that's composed of multiple fragments. Which type of fractures are pathognomonic for child abuse? No specific type of fracture. In other words, any fracture can be a sign of non-accidental trauma. Also, location of the fractures could be identified as epiphysial, physial, metaphysial, or diaphysial. Remember the specific type that involves the physis or physis, that's the growth plate, is classified under a Salter-Harris classification that we will discuss it in a bit. Okay, let's move on to some of the common fractures of childhood, beginning with the most common fractured long bone in children. What is it? Clavicular fracture. What are the common mechanisms of clavicular fracture? The mechanism at any age could be falling onto the shoulder, but specifically for neonates, the birth injuries are considered the common culprit. Now, what are the possible clinical features in an infant with clavicular fracture? It's usually asymptomatic or may present with asymmetric mororeflex or pseudoparalysis. How do we identify pseudoparalysis in an infant? The infant may refuse to move an extremity because of pain, while there is no objective findings associated with muscle weakness or paralysis. Physical exam also may show crepitus over the fracture. Now, talking about birth injuries, what variables increase the likelihood of the type of birth injury leading to clavicular fracture? In addition to large for gestational age infants, shoulder dystocia in vertex position or arm extension in breech presentation could both result in clavicular fracture. If this clavicular fracture is not identified at birth, what would be the finding later on? There will be a palpable callus within a week. Now, what are the possible findings in older children with clavicular fracture? In addition to possible point tenderness and deformity over the side of fracture, the child typically holds the affected limb with the opposite hand and tilts the head towards the affected side. What are the possible associated injuries in clavicular fractures? Brachial plexus, palsies, and subclavian artery injury. Why is it so? The location of the fracture that's usually the middle third of the clavicle predisposes to the risk of injury to these neurovascular elements. Remember that the proximal fracture end usually get displaced superiorly by the pull of the SCM muscle. True or false diagnosis is clinical and does not require imaging. That's false clavicular fracture is diagnosed on the basis of plain radiographs. What's the management? Immobilization with a sling for four to six weeks. Remember, sling is preferred over a figure of eight. Even though figure of eight would allow more elbow and hand movement, that could be taken care of with daily elbow range of motion exercises. Remember, this management only applies to midclavicular fracture. The fracture of the distal third usually requires orthopedic referral to prevent non-union, while, while proximal clavicular fracture requires emergency assessment of internal organ injury. So what are the surgical indications for clavicular fracture? Lateral clavicular fracture, displaced fracture or the one associated with excessive limb shortening, presence of hard signs of arterial injury or presence of any vascular lesions and imaging despite soft signs. Remember, presence of any hard signs of arterial injury requires angiography in the setting of clavicular fracture for assessment of subclavian arteries integrity. Now moving to 
the elbow fracture what is the most common pediatric elbow fracture that's supracondylar humerus fracture what's the common age it happens most commonly at ages five to eight years what's the mechanism of injury fall onto an outstretched arm or elbow under what circumstances the supracondylar humeral fracture is considered an orthopedic emergency? The angulated or displaced suprahumeral fracture. Why is it so? Never forget the proximity of supracondylar region of humerus to the brachial artery. Angulated or displaced fracture in this region increases the risk of neurovascular injury with compartment syndrome and Volksmann contracture. Based on this, what assessment is mandatory in any supracondylar fracture of the humerus? In addition to assessment for the fracture itself that is signified by point tenderness, swelling, or deformity of the elbow, it's very important to evaluate pulse sensation and movement of the fingers to rule out any possible neurovascular injury. What nerves can be damaged? In addition to the brachial artery, the nerves that could be damaged include radial or median nerves. What findings suggest compartment syndrome? Pain with passive extension of the fingers. In addition to assessment of neurovascular damage, what other precautions should be taken into consideration for the assessment of supracondylar humerus fracture? Remembering that any passive movement of the elbow in any patient suspected of supracondylar fracture of humerus should be avoided because such passive elbow movements can increase the risk of neurovascular damage. What's the important radiographic finding? There may be this triangular fat pad shadow posterior to the humerus that's referred to as posterior fat pad sign. What factor determines the management for supracondylar humeral fracture, whether or not the fracture is displaced or non-displaced? What's the management for non-displaced type? If the fracture is non-displaced and non-angulated, casting is the management. If the fracture is displaced or angulated, it requires surgical reduction and pinning. What are the complications of supracondylar fracture of the humerus? Compartment syndrome and Volksmann contracture, injury to radial, median, or ulnar nerve, and cubitus varus. What's precise definition of compartment syndrome? In this case, when the pressure within the anterior fascial compartment is greater than 30 to 45 millimeter mercury. What's Volksmann contracture? A complication of compartment syndrome in which there is flexion deformity of fingers and wrists. True or false, the five P's of neurovascular injury are sensitive or early indications of compartment syndrome. That's false. The five P's, including pallor, pulselessness, paralysis, pain, and paresthesia, are late signs of the compartment syndrome. So what is a more sensitive indicator? A more sensitive indicator, as you mentioned, is pain with passive extension of the fingers. What is cubitus varus? Decreased or absence of the carrying angle between forearm and the hand as a result of malunion following the supracondylar humerus fracture. Remember, this is a permanent complication. Now, what is that carrying angle? Remember, on anatomic position, when we stand with the palms facing forward, the forearm and hands should normally form a 5 to 15 degrees angle away from the body. That's referred to as the carrying angle of the elbow. This allows the forearms to clear the hips when we swing our arms during walking. So the patients with cubitus varus may complain that when they walk normally, 
their arms fail to clear the hips and it hits their hips. Okay, so far we have talked about a couple most common fractures, like the overall most common fracture in the children, which was clavicular fracture, and then the most common elbow fracture, that's supracondylar humeral fracture. Now, if you are asked what is the most common upper extremity fracture in children, the answer is distal radial fracture. We cover the forearm fractures mainly in the adult orthopedic section. Remember the two types of common forearm fractures, the Montegia and its mirror image Galetzi fractures. Remember the Montegia was the proximal ulnar fracture accompanied by anterior dislocation of radial head while Galetzi is the mirror image of Montegia in a way that it's distal radial fracture with dorsal dislocation of distal radial ulnar joint. Again, they are diagnosed by anteroposterior and lateral grafts and the rule of their management was ORIF, that's open reduction internal fixation for the broken bone, as well as closed reduction for the dislocated bone. Do you remember what was the distal radial fracture following fall on outstretched hand in the elderly that results in dinner fork deformity? That's the specific type of distal radial fracture referred to as coles fracture. Now let's discuss a couple of lower extremity fractures in children. One is femoral fracture and the other is spiral fracture of the tibia. Now, what's the significant point regarding the assessment of a child with femoral fracture? Given the fact that femoral fracture happens only following a great deal of mechanical force, assessment of injuries to the joints above and below the fracture are also necessary. That means diagnostic evaluation not only requires AP and lateral grafts of the broken femur, but at least one joint above and below the area of injury as well. What factor determines the management option in femoral fracture? Age of the patient. For example, for neonates, what's the management? It could be managed by pavlic harness. What about young children? We consider spica casting for young children, while traction or surgical stabilization could be other considerations. What's spiral fracture of the tibia? It's a type of fracture that may occur after very mild or no identifiable trauma. It's also referred to as toddler's fracture. Fibula remains intact and it's most commonly in toddlers aged 9 months to 3 years. What's the typical case? A toddler who refuses to bear weight but is willing to crawl, especially after a trip or fall, for example while running or playing. What's the important point regarding the diagnosis of toddler's fracture? Remember, for the diagnosis of a spiral fracture, we require oblique views. And what's the management? Long leg cast for three to four weeks. And finally, let's discuss Salter-Harris fractures briefly. What is it? A fracture involving growth plate or physis in children. How can we memorize the classification of Salter-Harris fractures? By the acronym SALTER, S stands for straight across, that's type 1. The fracture line is a straight across the physis line. A, the second letter in Salter acronym, indicates above, and above here means proximal. That's the fracture line that's above or proximal to the growth plate. L indicates a fracture line that's that reaches lower or distal to the physis or growth plate. T or TE stands for a fracture line through everything. That's from metaphysis 
through growth plates or physis all the way to the distal end of the bone or epiphysis. And R is ruined or rammed, which means crushing or compression of the growth plate, which is the type 5 Salter-Harris fracture. Now that said, a good question is which one of these Salter-Harris fractures may extend to the joint and involve the articular surface those are the ones that can extend all the way to the epiphysis and one of them is L the type 3 that reaches lower or distal to the growth plate and the other is type 4 or T which is going through everything all the way to the epiphysis. The other question is in what type Salter Harris fracture x-rays can be normal? In the type in which the growth plate is crushed that's type 5 there may be no easily identifiable fracture line contrary to type 1. Now what is the management recommendation for Salter Harris fractures? Closed or open reduction to obtain appropriate alignment followed by immobilization. What are the possible complications of Salter-Harris fracture? Growth disruption as well as bone deformities such as angulation. In what types of Salter-Harris we may have limb length discrepancy as a complication in the types that involve the physis such as Salter-Harris types 3 and 4 but also possible in type 5. Remember in type 1 or 2 the growth plate itself is not affected despite the proximity of the fracture line to the physis. And just a couple of final points regarding the features of fractures that could be considered typical of child abuse now referred to as non-accidental trauma. One, metaphysial fractures that's corner, also known as bucket handle fractures. Two, posterior or first rib fractures. Three, multiple fractures at various ages of healing. Four, complex skull fractures. Five, scapular, sternal, vertebral, spinous process fractures. And six, any fractures in which mechanism does not fit the history provided or the child's developmental abilities. For example, fractures of the lower extremities in a child who is not ambulatory yet should raise the concern for child abuse. This was a pretty lengthy episode, but I tried my best to fit all the high yield facts of pediatric orthopedic fractures. Thanks. Mm -hmm.